0: Hello, this is your host, Mark Lieberman of the show, The World According to Mark, uh, coming to you through WPVM LP in Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7 on your dial, streaming globally on WPVMFM.org. And today we have a repeat guest. He's repeat because he's a pretty smart guy and he talks about interesting things. And that is Michael Maslanka, a professor soon to be associate professor, uh, appointed associate professor uh, of law at the University of North Texas, Dallas College of Law. I think I got that right. So Michael, thanks for being on the show.
1: It's a privilege.
0: It's a privilege. Good, well, congratulations um, on your uh, tenured position. So Michael uh, knows, uh, and devotes himself to teaching and education of a variety of uh, subjects of the law. But he caught my attention recently in an article that he published in the Texas Lawyer, which is a publication for lawyers. And I know that most of my listeners are not lawyers. So we're gonna try to uh, stay a little bit out of the weeds and describe things. But he wrote an article that had the byline Cuomo case may be the catalyst to change sexual harassment laws. And then further, has the law concerning sexual harassment kept abreast of the societal change triggered by the Me Too movement? Or has it remained stuck in the pre-Me Too time warp? All right, that's a mouthful. So I'm going to stop talking (laughs) and ask you, Michael, um, uh, what was your motivation to sort of Bring the issue of uh, the Me Too movement as it pertains to uh, Governor uh, Cuomo.
1: There were two two reasons. First, um, it was topical; it was in the news, uh, and uh, people in the public had a lot of questions about it. The second was this: is you know, the Me Too movement started a number of years ago, and there's always been, in my mind, a question that I wanted to answer is. me too movement reflects culture it reflects society but is the me too movement synced up with the substantive law in other words the me too movement is kind of forward looking um is the law catching up with the me too movement the law as you know as a lawyer moves slowly and incrementally and i actually did a study on this and i teach and i think about it and what i found was that by and large the law is very slow to catch up with the Me Too movement and the cultural mores that are now saying, harassment is wrong, sexual harassment is wrong. It prevents an individual, both men and women, by the way, uh, from reaching their full potential. But the law sometimes doesn't catch up in the way it interprets the law to achieve the goals that the Me Too movement wants to achieve. And that's what got me interested in it. And that's why I decided to, think about and that's why I wrote the article and it was published in Texas Lawyer.
0: So I think that's a great introduction. Let me just add a couple thoughts of my own that I came to after reading your article and doing a little bit of research And and we talked about this before we came on air. As you say, Me Too movement is forward thinking. I guess it's safe to point out first of all that while the Me Too movement has um, gained a lot of adherence and has a lot of supporters, including a lot of uh, folks in uh, politics, lawyers, and Congress and the like, not everybody um, shares uh, admiration for for Me Too. There's always, it it tends to be that that a progressive movement has some backlash. And, some people feel that the Me Too movement uh, has gone too far. And, and when you, what you said, though, is, which is more important, frankly, is the judicial process is, is not a, 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 an arena, essentially, where s- social issues are aired. The, the, the law is built upon statutes, constitutional principles, of course, and actual cases that come before the judge. So even uh, uh, accepting the fact that it's slow, it's also not the case that judges and lawyers are going to evaluate issues pertaining to sexual harassment in the same way as um, people who are in politics or people that are part of the progressive Me Too movement. Yeah, I
1: think that's right. It's not synced up, complete and total, the and total disconnect may, may be going a little far, but there's a disconnect between the, between the substance of law, which someone is sexually harassed, quote unquote. They want a remedy for that. And the law is not always designed to provide a remedy. That's the disconnect, right? People think, oh, this is awful. This is sexual harassment. Something must be done. Damages must be paid. But the disconnect, and that's where the Me Too movement is. The disconnect is that the law puts brakes on that idea. The law has a fairly high standard for establishing, for instance, sexual harassment or a hostile environment. And so they're up here, the Me Too movement, and the law is sort of catching up a little bit. It's taken a while. It's doing it very slowly. Someday they'll be equal, right? But not now. Not now.
0: Well, I think uh, my opinion is that where there is a sync up is is between the Me Too movement and the law is the Me Too movement, one of its objectives, I would would presume, is to motivate, incent, support women, and not just women, we know, but people in the workplace who feel as if they have been sexually harassed and not amounting to rape or some criminal conduct, who prior to Me Too and the public- positive publicity it's gotten, have been reluctant to uh, come forward. They're still reluctant to come forward. Even um, this movement is at least a decade long, maybe longer, I'm not sure. So the fact that the Me Too movement has a pro- provided a push to people who otherwise might protest, as well as a sort of backup defense that somebody who comes forward and expresses uh, what happened to them as a potential sexual harassment are not, and this may be a wish and a prayer, are not as likely to get um, stones thrown at a, and to be dismissed out of, out, of, out of pocket, so to speak, for having raised the claims to begin with.
1: Yeah, and when they—that's a good point. You know, when they raise the claims, it's very interesting. So, what they have to prove in court are many things. The the standard that's been set up by the Supreme Court is that the plaintiff, again, a man or a woman, but I mean, it's it, it applies to both. Well, I mean, I mean, laughs. He's speaking about women. Has to prove that the environment, the hostile environment, is either, is either severe or pervasive. What does severe mean? Is it once? Is it twice? I don't think so. If it's bad enough, if a terrible slur is used against a woman, maybe once or twice, the worst slur you can imagine, that may be sexual harassment in the mind of the Me Too movement. But the court is not going to say there's a legal remedy here. Uh, and, the, and then the question about pervasiveness. Maybe it's not severe, but does, it, does the sexual harassment happen all the time? But if something, would, if it happens all the time, if it's simply indignities, in politeness, You're not uh, taking care of my feelings as an employee. The law is not concerned with that. Society may be, and they maybe should be. The law is not concerned. And those kinds of cases get bounced out.
0: Okay. So moving ahead here then, um, first of all, you might want to educate our listeners in in terms of what are the elements of sexual harassment and might also want to distinguish between a criminal case of sexual harassment and a civil case, and then we'll, we we need to start talking about uh, the Cuomo case, which is what your article was uh, had, had featured.
1: Sure. So the elements of a, of a, of a so there's a couple of different kinds of uh, sexual harassment cases. One kind is called a quid pro quo, and that's uh, you sleep with me, um, and you get a promotion. Uh, and conduct in that case is not consensual. It's unwelcome um, uh, in those sense. And then something bad happens to the employee because she refuses to have sexual uh, relations with the, with the manager, we'll talk about managers in a minute. So that's, that's sort of this quid pro quo. The other sort is a hostile environment. And that's where the workplace is so saturated saturated with hostility towards women not necessarily even dealing with sexuality, but hostility towards women. Women don't belong in the workplace. Go home, have children, be pregnant, be fruitful and multiply, but get out of my workplace. That too is a separate kind of claim. And in those kinds of claims, the damages that the woman or the man doesn't feel or isn't allowed to reach their full potential. As a human being, and as a worker, more importantly, as an employee, so those are the sort of two kinds of claims. That ninety-nine percent of the time, those those are where the claims, those are where the claims fall. And with Governor Cuomo, um, from what I can what I can decipher from the report, it's more of this hostile environment claim, right? So that's the civil component of this. Now, there's also can be a criminal component. The criminal component is sometimes is that there's uh, physical touching, right? It's assault and battery. You you say you're going to touch someone, it's not consented to. We'll talk about consent in a bit, Um, but nonetheless, it it occurs. You grab someone's buttocks, you touch someone's uh, breasts. Um, That is a crime. It can it can also be civil liability but it can be criminal liability as well. Uh, because there are, in every state, there's statutes against assault and battery. And that's what they're investigating. Well, soon to be, I guess today maybe he's resigning, uh, soon to be former Governor Cuomo. So that's the, that's the criminal aspect of this. And, and you, more and more people are going to vote. You know, people who believe that they've been, they've been victimized. And remember, men are also covered under. You know, it says in the statute, title seven, because of sex, doesn't say because of of females, you're treated differently. You're exposed to these conditions at work because of your sex, because of your gender. But the devil, as you say, Mark, is in the details.
0: So uh, something I just got from what you just said is the line between uh, civil and criminal conduct is it seems to go along the line of what you say versus what you do so so um now there were elements among in the 165 page report um going through 11 uh victims and complainants in which he quote did he governor cuomo was alleged to have touched but the t- the touching which would make it a criminal case or maybe a good criminal case would be something more aggressive presumably than that and I don't know if that is a hard line or you know a, a gray line between again merely merely and I use the word merely saying because in the, in years and years past what you say is not generally criminal. I mean, we had the whole issue with the insurrection. You can say a lot of stuff, apparently, but until you cross the line into promoting uh, violence, it doesn't necessarily take on a criminal element. I don't want to get into that, but uh, do you follow what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, what you say, and it's interesting you say this years ago uh, here in uh, uh, Texas, the case called the DeAngelis case. And the complaint was that things that were said, right about women and their place in society should not be punished. Why? Because they're protected by the First Amendment. And that issue has never really been resolved. but it is a defense, right? both the criminal context as well as the civil context. To say, yeah, I said these terrible things. Or maybe these things that are not politically correct. Women shouldn't be working there. Women are dumb, women are stupid. Uh, that's an opinion. And, and the government through the law cannot censor that opinion. And so we haven't really seen a lot of it, but the first amendment is always there as a possibility for defense. I would simply say this about the crossover between civil and criminal. And, and, and I give the Me Too movement credit for this, credit for, for changing this. For the longest time to have a civil crime of hostile environment, the courts seemed to repeatedly focus in on touching. Was there unwelcome physical content? was the nature of that physical content? Was it threatening to the person who was subjected to it? And finally, you know, a few years ago, courts started to tease out that idea and to say, you could have a hostile environment based upon sex and be civilly liable without, without unwanted physical touching, Because uh, employers, I used to represent employers, and for many years before right, became a law professor uh, six years ago, would argue, well, nobody got touched. right? It was just, it was just language. It was just opinions. Um, and the court said, finally, the court said, you know what? You don't need to show touching with your opinion. If it's such an environment that is so hostile, it essentially prevents you from getting your job done at work then it's gonna be what's called the law, cognitive, a recognized
0: thing. But it, from your article, and I'll let you speak to this, it does seem as if the issue of you know, verbal versus you know, uh, physical behavior touching still creeps in to um, you know, the, the, the responsibility on the part of the plaintiff to prove his or her case such as um, the courts decided a case where it seemed like the court was really saying if a if this was a case where a woman was working in a so-called blue-collar environment and there were the usual blue-collar jokes and calendars and uh, what sometimes is referred to as quote locker room talk and the court um, recognized that some of that um, would not is is sort of part of the the deal that a woman would have. It sounds offensive to me, but that a woman would have when if she goes to work in that environment, that she sh- shouldn't she she shouldn't be turned off by it to the point of feeling like there's a sexual harassment issue if she went to that workplace knowing the, the context of it. Yeah, you
1: know, you raise an interesting point and a good point. There are some cases. Things- uh, and I cite one in, in, in the rabid case where the courts say, male judges, let me just let me just hasten to add, you never get an opinion like this from a female judge, but male judges will say, you know what, uh, and I think in this case I mentioned my article, it was an oil refinery it was a blue collar, a blue collar environment. They, they basically said, I'm going to translate this. What do you expect? Therefore, it's going to be tossed around. There are going to be pinups. There's going to be naked, you know, women naked in, uh, in Playboy or Penthouse or whatever these magazines are. There's going to be language that is derogatory towards women. And you don't want that's part of the deal. And what these courts say, they, they cloak it, though. They cloak it in, in legal language. They cloak it. Well, you assume the risk. You consent it you consented to this kind of environment and therefore you don't have a claim. Well, from a moral standpoint and from a legal standpoint, that doesn't hold. Let me just talk about a legal standpoint. What if you're a black person and you go and you want to work at a company that has had racism and issues for a number of years and you're the first black employee there? Is a court going to say, well, you're black. You know what you're getting into. There's a bunch of terrible people. They have a history. You know, you know, read it in the newspapers. You consented to racism. It. it doesn't work in that context. Kind of so why should it work for the woman? It works. It works. I mean, it works in the minds of some. Of some. I, I don't think this is the style. You know why? Because she's a woman. It is unfortunate, but it's sort of like, well, why did you dress it? Well, of course you would be dressing in a sexy way. You asked for it and that is offensive morally and that's not a political statement, it simply is. It's offensive legally because it's a different standard than you would apply to a black person. And it- it doesn't make any sense. It's a terrible argument to make. The jury will, I think, if this argument is not handled correctly, I don't think it should be made. One will sort of try to make it. It's going to blow up in your face if you're an employer. It's, it's just, it's morally, it's, it's a morally bankrupt argument. But there's still cases in the books that have never been overruled, never been set aside, and it's still used. And
0: it shouldn't be. Um. So, again, I, going back to your first uh, or statements about um, Me Too being ahead of the judicial system um, and me suggesting that Me Too is pushing hard on uh, victims uh, mm-hmm. to come forward and trying to create uh, an atmosphere where... Um, some of the more baseless defenses, including those that Cuomo raised, are hopefully uh, on their way to being um, illegitimate from a from a legal standpoint. And I think that's part of what you were trying to get to in yeah, your article. I
1: that's right. I, th- I think the mutual movement's done a lot to getting rid of this physicality requirement to this grabbing. Right. In fact, uh, uh, we're here in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, in, in, in the case several years, maybe about four years ago, uh, the circuit said, you, you don't need to touch you. You don't need the grab to prove a hospital. And so I think the, I think the B2 movement has helped sensitize people and judges to that issue. Give them all the credit in the world for that. But this notion of consent is still so ingrained in our culture that she consented to it. That one's going to be a hard one to identify. Governor Cuomo, uh, former governor, he sort of raised a trial, believe, in his first speech, right? It, it just, it came out of nowhere. He said, well, I work, we work in a demanding environment. And I try to lighten things up. But, you know, I think he said something that quoted him directly. This is a 24-7 environment. I thought, well, why is he saying that? And what occurred to me is it's a trial period. He raised a trial and to see how it would go over because I think he may be using that as some sort of consent defense. So I don't know, it's a, it's, but it's a bad argument. I, if I was representing him, and I, I, from what I can tell, I think he's a very good uh, advocate and effective uh, lawyer representing him. Um, I would stay away from it. him. Yeah. Evidently, he. well.
0: Evidently, learned his lesson, at least in part because he withdrew. But let me again introduce uh, Michael Maslanka, who is uh, a uh, tenured professor now, uh, soon will be at the University of North Texas at Dallas College of Law, contributor to many publications, including Texas Lawyer. And we're talking about um, sexual harassment, harassment, harassment. sometimes I get that both ways, the Me Too movement and um, how things look uh, in the light uh, now that has been thrown on uh, ex-governor Cuomo. Uh, And we're talking about the fact that even though the Me Too movement has been effective in resensitizing or sensitizing people who presumably weren't before and setting up some potential boundaries about um, allegations which may not have a, a legal impact and may also just be uh, embarrassingly ridiculous uh, as some of Governor Cuomo's statements have presumably come back to haunt him. But some of the challenges, and I, and I wanted to bring up again in terms of one of the elements for proving sexual harassment on a civil level is you have to show damage. And that yeah. seems to me to be another place in which the sort of pre me Too movement can insidiously insert itself. I wanted to see yeah. what you thought about that.
1: I think it, I think that's why. So the idea is, well, where's the damage? It's the hospital, so you're eligible for a promotion. You don't get it because you don't sleep with it. so you don't get the promotion. So that's can right? A hospital environment, by contrast, how are you harmed, right? What 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 are you harmed? It because it, it, it's very perverse. Because the concept is, is that you were unable to do your job to the best of your ability. That was the harm. But what if you're a strong person, a strong woman, a strong man? What if that's the case? No remedies? So courts are starting, and there's a, there's a fairly recent case saying, merely affecting your potential to be better. Let's say you're a saleswoman and let's say you're, you're, you're an excellent saleswoman. There's all kinds of sexual harassment, hostile environment, but you're an A saleswoman. A. Well, if this harassment start, stops you from being an A plus saleswoman or it impedes your growth into being an A plus saleswoman, that's enough to show the damage that you quite can, um, astutely pointed out. That'll be enough because the law should not be so perverse. That, that someone who's mentally tough should not, should not be protected. And also in terms of damages, uh, there may not be any out-of-pocket damages, but the law allows for what are called uh, compensatory damages. And compensatory damages uh, entail, there's something called mental anguish, but they cover much more. Uh, they cover uh, loss and enjoyment of life. Right? And what very effective plaintiffs lawyers do represent employees what they do is they paint a before and after. picture. I have a new book that actually came out not long ago, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this. This is my life before the hospital. Bed. This is my life after the hospital. Bed. And that's effective because it says, I'm always having to look over my shoulder. I'm always having to walk on eggshells. I don't enjoy my life the way I used to enjoy my life. I hang out with my friends. Now, I'll mention this too. And I think this is true. It goes back to consent. It always kind of twists you down the a In my experience over being 40 years of a lawyer as a woman, women often will participate in the in the unseemly joke. The banter. The banter. Why? <laughs> because they want to be accepted. No one wants to be the odd person out. And so what we sometimes perceive as consent is simply a woman's way of surviving. Can't put it any more directly than that. And so that's why both from a legal standpoint and just a moral and sociological one, simply by participating doesn't mean that they're consenting. There may may be exceptions to that. she may initiate, not just once, but several times. So there's a lot of gray in the law, but you cannot assume that just because she participates, she's consenting. There can be other reasons that you have to look
0: at. You know, I think there's another lens and I'm not sure whether you covered this in uh, this article or covered it in some other publication, but it has to do with the quote, reasonable person versus the reasonable woman concept. Talk about how that uh, gets into the calculus of whether somebody has effectively put forth a, a case, a uh, credible case on se- sexual harassment.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because it's crucial, right? So let's say there's a lawsuit and let's say it goes to the jury. The jury's given what's called jury instruction to, to decide whether the environment was objectively hostile and subjectively hostile. Would a reasonable, would would a person looking at it objectively think it was hostile and would stop the person, the plaintiff from getting her job done, right? And subjectively, if she, or he subjectively believed uh, that it was a hostile environment. Well, they've given jury instructions and no one, the courts have not agreed on this. So some courts say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Look at it as, as, as a reasonable person. Would a reasonable person be offended by what's going on and, and stop, be, be, be frustrated in the doing the job? Now, minority courts, and I give credit to the Me Too movement right? you know, for this, right? For the focus, they say, no, that's not right. It's a reasonable woman's stand. And that's interesting. That concept actually was a throwaway line in an opinion by the late Justice Scalia. It was before the Me Too movement. He talked about a reasonable person. I think it's what lawyers call victim. I think it was just thrown in there. But now it's been seized. And our court here in Texas, our appeals court here in Texas, a few weeks ago, didn't say it was victim. They said it's the law. It's the reasonable person in the place of that plaintiff, what I take to mean as a reasonable woman. Would a reasonable woman feel offended? You know what, I, I, I'm not gonna be, I'm not a woman. I've never gone through their experiences. And what this means is all kinds of evidence about her background, the, back, the, the, the history of discrimination against women, all of that would become then relevant in a trial all of it. A reasonable woman standard unlocks that evidence. Reasonable person, it's all irrelevant. A reasonable woman for what a woman goes through, then if that's the standard, if that's what the jury has to measure the facts against, all this stuff goes in. All this stuff about women and subjugation, all of it. Um, and that can be devastating to an to an employee
0: well, oh hopefully, it, hopefully we'll get to a point um in which the distinction between a reasonable person and a reasonable woman doesn't there there is no distinction because a reasonable person yeah. should be should be able to relate regardless of his or her gender. Yeah,
1: I have uh, often thought of because about King I'm, not kidding, I'm, I'm even though I'm tenured, I'm not king of the universe. I do my office here. I always like the idea of a reasonable human being. All right. I mean, you know, we're all human, right? We're humans. Well, reasonable
0: human I'm old enough to remember in law school that we have always talked about the reasonable man or the yeah. reasonable man in the Clapham, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, omnibus. Which was the British standard for the reasonable man, <laughs> because I don't think we had yeah. Clapham omnibuses here. But in any event, so uh, again, these issues have to be teased out. Um, uh, we talked about uh, s- several of them. Um, let's uh, let's move a, a little bit further into this now. Again, um, I, I think uh, the societal. Norms about what constitutes reasonable behavior versus harassment. If only a, a tenth or a third of the allegations in the 165-page report held up, to me that that would be enough to um, to find uh, ex-governor Cuomo civilly liable for his his actions. But of course. I have to temper that thought, um, introduce a little politics here is because we went through uh, the Trump administration and we went through um, allegations of, in some cases, more sinister conduct on the part. And I I must say in fairness, allegations, much more sinister conduct and and physical contact by the ex-President Trump.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's
0: true. My, my point there is simply that if you were trying to account for where the Me Too movement has pushed us um, and put us in a position where we can start acting more fairly in the adjudication of these things, we look at the fact that Governor Cuomo for various reasons decided it was better to uh, sit down. We still have to factor in all of the Sort of bad precedent associated with an unprosecuted ex president of the United States, who presumably, as I said, according to the allegations, was engaged in much more nefarious behavior. So what? So what gives there? Because he was the president. Because a lot of issues. You
1: know, I'll be I'll be candid. I don't know. It, it's, it, it puzzles me as well. I don't, I really can't explain. It. I mean, I wish, I mean, I really, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I don't understand the dynamics of it. Because the accusations against former President Trump were much more serious. I mean, that's the accusations of Governor Cuomo, former Governor Cuomo are serious, don't misunderstand they're much much more serious, <laughs> and it could just very well be that uh, you know justice will be catching up in some sense with, with President Trump. But I, I really I I don't, I
0: don't know. Well, I would say again, I don't want to uh, bury this topic, but I, I would presume that maybe Governor Cuomo thought he could quote get through this, slide by it, because uh, Trump who again was alleged to have committed worse acts did. So he felt, and, and, and look, I think it was, uh, it was one of the complainants, I think number 11, who never has been named a trooper who was, uh, according to the story, uh, she was accompanying him to a signing ceremony or ceremony for his, for governor Cuomo's uh, uh, authorizing a a law uh, that was tougher on, on sexual harassment, and then she gives information to the attorney general saying she herself was was harassed. So,
1: I, I, I you know, yeah, I, I recall that and there was some touching. that I, I would make this observation about the contrast between Cuomo and Trump: is that is that Trump's uh, the allegations against Trump? Don't deal in the workplace. They deal with third parties, reporters or or whomever. Cuomo strike more to home to people. This is the workplace. And I think maybe what the governor forgot, I'll take a generous view of this, is the power differential. Yeah, he's the governor, but it it, it exists all over. There's different power dynamics and you have to understand between a manager, an executive, a law professor, an employee or a student, there just is. So by way of example, uh, there's an accusation that uh, uh, one of his subordinates uh, was sexually uh, assaulted. The governor Coleman said, well, that's something close to me. I mean, he didn't say either. he was one of his guys And so I have a lot of experience with that. So he decided to really play counselor with him. And he asked her questions. He said, well, somebody close to me he was like, sexually assaulted. And then he decided to ask all these questions about being gay, being accessible older men. Even if those were well-intentioned, you're the boss, you're not a counselor. You can show empathy, concern, you need some time off, uh, Uh, they're seeing a therapist maybe each time off, but you can't intrude. You simply can't. There's someone in their 60s, she's a young person in her 20s, and the dynamic is such that even if you're not thinking exploitation, the idea is it could lead to exploitation of an unfair nature. And no. Yes, that's you're not a, you're not you're not a therapist, Andrew. You know, you're not a therapist. You're a lawyer.
0: I, I think you raise a really important distinction. Now, sort of clarifying it. As, as bad as the allegations may have been against Trump, as you correctly pointed out, most, if not all of them, didn't occur in connection with um, him managing a workplace, because, frankly, he didn't really manage a workplace. But workplace environments are obviously very important. And uh, and and we've been doing things for you know, some things for the last 40 or 50 years to make sure that uh people of color get hired and don't feel intimidated people who identify with different genders than they were born with, don't have a tough time and so on and so forth. And as you say, there's fairly well explicit rules. Every, every company, every a government agency has a handbook on how you're supposed to behave in a workplace and what happens if you feel that there's a problem, but, um, again, that, that also poses some constraints, which is, and I don't know what was the case with these 11 complainants, but the question then arises is, if you felt that you were being harassed, what did you do about it? Who did you report it to? And, and that's, a, a, again, a, a fuzzy analytical area because it brings up a lot of issues like, did you feel like you could report? But we yes. don't want to speak to that.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. So the Supreme Court in the United States several years ago said that an employer, um, if a manager, a true manager, right, somebody in authority, takes an adverse action against them, and doesn't promote them or fires them because they don't have one of sex with them, then the employer, uh, if the jury believes that to be the case, uh, is automatically liable. But there's this whole other area of this hostile environment that we were talking about. So, the Supreme Court said, so you know what, if, if, if you as the employer set up uh, a reporting system um, uh, to say, you're not going to be retaliated against, if there's an issue, we want, we want you to say, it. report it to HR, you don't have to report it to the, to the manager above you if that's the one doing the harassing. And there have been a lot of cases that were dismissed where the plaintiff said, I didn't report it because I, I was afraid something to me. Now the Me Too movement has actually had an effect in the city. It's in the northeastern part of the United States. So there's a, a, a federal appeals group. that covers Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, sort of another state. And what the court said was this. They said, you know what? There may be a really good reason she didn't report, and we're not. And if there is a good reason, and other people have been fired. The only thing between me and the street is this paycheck. If there's something that that can go to the jury, and the jury can say, you know what, she acted as a reasonable person or as a reasonable woman in not reporting, then we're going to not penalize her. With automatic dismissal of her case because she didn't report it. We're going to let a jury figure out would she be reasonable, not reasonable? Should she report it, or should she not report it? That all came about because of the Me Too movement. This Third Circuit case that I mentioned, I think at the end of my article, is a big deal, right? Because it chips away at this very powerful defense that employers have. And I did some research on it. It hasn't been picked up in the rest of the country yet, but I think that's just because it's not well known. If it's picked up in the rest of the country, then we'll see a different dynamic of terms of these cases being dismissed. Because if, you, if you're harassed and there's a policy, you don't report it, you're pretty much DOA. Your claim is DOA, that's it. The Third Circuit now has breathed life into this case.
0: Well, and, and one can have some sympathy for the notion that um, at a minimum, a party should report because the concept of reporting in both case law and policy was really a way of, again, flushing things out, flushing things out might be the right word, and creating an obligation on the part of the employer to have, um, a, a process where a victim would not feel uh, threatened by going, by, by making her claim.
1: Yeah, and that's right. And so I'll just build on that a little bit, is the idea is tell the employer what's wrong so I can fix it. Now, maybe that's a sort of idealized utopian version of the way things should work, but we have to have aspirations to make the law better. And that's an aspiration.
0: And I can imagine. Uh, but Let me just uh, again, for those just tuning in, hopefully, or for those who forget, we're talking with Professor Michael Maslanka, the uh, pr- a professor of law at the University of North Texas at D- Dallas College of Law. We're talking about sexual harassment. We're talking about uh, the Cuomo case, and we're talking about sort of the 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 bar for victims t- to. Um, Get their claim heard and, and get taken seriously. Um, but I can imagine a case where um, an, an individual uh, or employer um, has responded uh, very, very, very nicely, so to speak, or very well to harassment claims. Um, and you know, vetted them out and so on and so forth. And then, in a particular instance in which somebody did not come forward, did not have the opportunity to determine whether or not there was a hostile workplace, and that being used as favorable evidence to the uh, to the employer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's
1: absolutely that's absolutely correct. Um, although I, I I will say this in my case because I'm saying. I, and it's sensitive to another issue here. And that's people who are wrongly accused, or where there's a disproportionate response by the employer. So some employers think, got a complaint, I'm going to solve this. You know, as Stalin said, no man, no problem. And they fire the man. They just fire him. They don't listen to what he has to say. They don't conduct an investigation looking at his point of view, but they listen to everything she says. I'm assuming it's, the, it's a woman community. If that's the case, then the man has a claim of sex discrimination because he is similarly situated. There's an accuser and an accused. And if the accuser gets better treatment because of her sex, then the accused does because of his sex. And there's a rush to judgment. That is a claim on the face of it for discrimination, because false allegations are made, accusations that are false are made. That is altogether possible and true. Um, And so, I think any response has to be what I like to call proportionate. It's got to be proportionate to the issue at hand. And I just say one other thing? Employees make. A terrible mistake but let's say they investigate they can't figure what's going on so they tell they tell let's say it's a female they say well if there's an issue come back and let us know it doesn't mean no 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 you go back you say that but then you go back to the person periodically is everything on? anything you want to tell me any issues that have arisen in any way at work you take that proactive stance and you'll, you'll find out what's going on. And if you're later sued, that's a wonderful defense because you say you don't want harassment, but you know, as my mother used to say, if you say something is important, treat it like it's important. If you say you don't want harassment in the workplace, then treat it that way. And going back to the person who complains saying we couldn't figure it out, I'll check in on you every once in a while. Is that okay? I want to make sure things are fine. That's living up to your promise. That's living up to your aspiration.
0: Very good. Well, let me move to another area. (coughs) Excuse me. I wanted to just uh, get your views on, (coughs) and that is the evidence rules as they (laughs) pertain to introducing. <clears throat> information about an alleged victim and information about uh, the alleged perpetrator. And there seems to be a little bit of a dichotomy there. I don't want to get too much into the, uh, the rules of evidence and rules of uh, procedure, but I think there's some important issues there to, to probe. So uh, specifically, uh, there's, there's a rule. There's an overall rule of what kind of evidence can be introduced into a case. You can't say not, not all information is relevant, There's and then there's information that's relevant but is considered to be prejudicial. We've all watched television shows where a lawyer stands up and says, you know, I object, not because the information is not potentially relevant, but because it's so disparaging. Um, I don't believe that that evidence should be introduced and the jury's excused and the lawyers fight about it. How does all that play into um, what we're talking about here?
1: So back in, this is pre, pre Me Too movement, right? So back in 1980, 1994, there was a rule of evidence called Rule 412. And it originally started in the criminal context because what would happen, defense attorneys representing the police, they would defend their client by putting the complaining witness, the complaining woman on trial. Well, tell us about your past. How many people have you slept with? What have you done? Have you ever, you know, been a call girl? All this stuff, right? It was unrestrained. And so the idea was, we're going to limit that, is that is that you cannot put the victim on trial simply because she may have had sexual relationships with a number of people, right? Now they're all kind of nuances and how the rule is interpreted. But the, the the Congress decided to apply that rule to sexual harassment cases. So sometimes a lot of lawyers don't notice. So they're defending the sexual harassment case and they go, oh, wow, wow. You know, um, uh, she's a loose woman, quote unquote. You know, she has sex with a lot of guys and, and and they think that's relevant to the case. And they certainly try to offer it. That violates the rule, you get into deep trouble. If that's the case and you want to put that evidence on, which I think is, it's strategic, put it, you, you've got to go to the judge ahead of the trial. you got to ask for a special hearing. You have to give the judge the evidence. It's not made public. And then a hearing is conducted as to whether this evidence is gonna be excluded under what we call a Rule, 4, Rule 412 motion. Because the issue at trial is, was she sexually harassed in violation of law? Not the conduct. Now, there are certain exceptions of if, if she, for instance, was constantly initiating jokes. Uh, if she was the one, for instance, that you have to tell to be quiet. Don't do it anymore. That's different. But that's why we have judges. You know? That's why we have law. But 412 is very powerful. And it stops the person who's the alleged victim from being put on trial and focuses the decision to the, the jury, on what are the real facts? What happened in this instance? Now there is a dichotomy because there's Rule Four Fifteen, and there's Me Too evidence. You see it in Bill Cosby. You saw it in the case of um, the uh, you know, the producer uh, in Weinstein. Weinstein, yeah, is this Me Too evidence? Well, you could you could bring out ten women who claim that they were harassed by the same guy. Isn't that a double standard? And you know, I I think it is, and it bothers me because just as the woman has a right, so does the, the man who uh, allegedly harassed her or, or a, a criminally assaulted her. Uh, and the, I, my objection to this has always been, it's not fair because you, you get into 10 different little crimes, right? Every, little, every, every person says, well, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me. You've got to defend each and every one of them. And, and the jury loses sight of what they're there to determine which is the guilt or innocence, the liability or non-liability of the person being accused, um, and that was not that was argued in the Cosby case. It was not decided by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court because they decided uh, to release him based on other arguments. So he never reached the argument about Me Too evidence being unduly prejudicial. But it's going to happen. It's, it's it's coming down the plane. I mean, it's, I- it's the next big area. Litigation and
0: a controversy. I mean, I can see um, uh, sort of an argument why the uh, past conduct of the alleged perpetrator is relevant. Obviously, because again, typically the types of uh, activity we're talking about, whether it's rape or sexual harassment or whatever. There's no, there's no eyewitnesses. <laughs> so in the absence, it's a he said, she said situation. So it's, uh, you know, the, the law has a hard time with those types of issues, it would appear.
1: But, but if it happened, by the way, if it happened in the same workplace
0: mm-hmm. or in the
1: same temporal period of time, that evidence is going to get in. But if it happened at a different employer, right? if it happened not in the same temporal uh, time frame, period, well, know in, in the same year that uh, the, the plaintiff uh, was uh, was allegedly harassed. And it happened four years ago is attenuated right And in those cases it's unfair. Like
0: and we've had a, again is, I mean that goes to the theory of just because somebody robbed a bank five years ago doesn't mean he robbed this bank at this particular time. And I guess most lawyers understand that and not, a, not the, the general public generally doesn't doesn't see that as clearly and distinctly. So, um, well, we just have a, a, a few more minutes left. Um, I, I, I think there's another way in which the Me Too movement gets somewhat involved in this process. And it's, it's not prior sexual conduct, but again, it has the, it's the issue of consent and the extent to which a woman or a man invites the activity by what she says, how how she dresses, her conduct, and so on and so forth. And I think the Me Too movement has tried to put all that behind. Have, has that been successful? And is that the right approach?
1: I I, I think it should be
0: behind us.
1: I think, though, that <laughs> I would have a different approach. And when I was in practice, I don't practice anything. But when I would advise clients, and I represented, I represented corporate America, I I would tell them, you have to get an anti-harassment policy. I understand all that. But in addition to that, have a standalone professionalism policy. We hired you because we expect you, no matter what job you do here, to be professional. To treat our clients and our customers with professionalism and courtesy. And to treat your coworkers, whether they're above you at the same level or subordinate to you, with professionalism and courtesy. That goes to your language in the workplace. That goes to your manner of dress. We want a professional work environment. And I think too often employers get all worked up about, well, was it severe or was it pervasive? Look, have you got to have that? I get it. I understand. That. I was a lawyer. I understand. That. I just don't work. have a professionalism policy. And people, if you. Explain it to them in the right way. You appeal to the angels of their better nature. They will aspire, by and large, to be the professionals that you believe them to be. And a lot of, all, a lot of this other stuff will go away. People say, well, I have a right to dress the way I want to. I have a right to... No, you don't. No, no, you, you really don't. You, you don't have a right to wear a certain kind of clothing. You work here. A condition of employment is to be a professional. This is not a professional dress. Period. End of story. You don't have that inalienable right. You have inalienable rights, but they don't extend to unprofessional clothing, by way of example. Don't do it. And I think a professionalism policy
0: goes a long way
1: well go ahead a friendly friendly friendly, you know recommendation yeah shakespeare is a is a great phrase and uh, as you like it friendly to your ear yes i must tell you something friendly to your ear friendly to your ear don't wear
0: It's not, it's not a legal edict. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you, Michael Maslanka, professor, sure. for uh, this enlightening conversation. And I'd like to have you back again. There's more we can discuss. We can talk about workplace issues like wearing a mask, but that's for another time. So thank you. And I want to thank my producer, Focus Solutions, Shelly Lieberman. And again, we'd love to have you back, Michael.
1: Sure. It's a privilege, always. Thank you.
0: Thank you.